Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I want to start with a, a story from my life. I used to be into Eminem, the rapper. Uh, I know. Anyway, I was. And I went to see him live at the Astoria, a venue in central London in 1999. And he was already known but not massive at that point and it was a great gig and I loved it and I went and saw him again at another similarly sized venue shortly after that also great and then in 2002 I saw Eminem at the O2 Centre a much bigger venue by now he'd become a bit of a superstar and behaved accordingly I even saw him I remember a 10 year old looking like Eminem with dyed blonde hair and one tracksuit, trouser leg rolled up. And I thought, I can't like Eminem anymore. He's too popular and it, it doesn't fit my worldview. And so I sort of gave up on him. OK, here's another story which brings this whole thing into poetry podcast context. At Birmingham Polytechnic, when I was doing what I like to call my first English degree, I discovered the poetry of W.H. Auden, and I loved it. I completely fell for Auden, uh, particularly a book of his poems called The Collected Shorter Poems, 1927 to 1957, which was the sort of course book. It is an absolute treasure trove of, of brilliant stuff. So, yeah, so I, I loved him, and I continued to read him after I was no longer a student. And then in 1994, Four Weddings and a Funeral, the Richard Curtis film, came out and featured a funeral in which a man reads an Auden poem called Funeral Blues. And it was very moving and became very popular and suddenly everyone knew Auden and everyone knew the poem. And I thought, you know what? He's a bit too popular now. And I went off him a bit. It wasn't that conscious, but looking back, that is what happened. And then I now come to the end of this story, and there will be poetry in a minute. I went to a David Hockney exhibition, David Hockney, the British artist, at the Tate Gallery on the Thames. It was brilliant, and I was looking around really enjoying it. And I saw a section of ink drawings by Hockney, line drawings. I didn't even know he did that kind of stuff. And then one of them was a drawing of Auden, which was on the cover of the collected Shorter Poems, 1927 to 1957. I didn't even know Hockney had done that drawing, but seeing it again, that book, which was always in my knapsack, it really moved me. There were tears, I'm not exaggerating. And I thought, you know what, it was like meeting uh, an ex again years later and falling in love all over. And so I got back into Auden and I realised I'd been foolish to be put off by the fact that he had featured in a, in a movie. So today I want to look at a couple of poems from the collected shorter poems, 1927 to 1957. And I'm going to begin with a poem that I have, I mean, or long loved. And it's a poem called Musée de Beauvoir. Not bad uh, pronunciation. So um, I'm just going to read you the first 
chunk. And bear in mind, I would have first read this, I guess, 1980. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. Now, I would say that this poem, as I recall it, introduced me to the idea of syntax as an important feature in poetry. Now, I know that sounds like a real obvious thing that any idiot would notice straight away, but this was the turning point for me. And it was that first line, first line and a half, about suffering they were never wrong, the old masters. The old masters, incidentally, I'm sure you know, are sort of venerated European artists pre-1800. About suffering they were never wrong, the old masters. Now, the obvious syntax there is the old masters were never wrong about suffering. That's, if we were saying it in conversation, that's how it would go. But... It just struck me about suffering, to put that at the front, it's like a, a heading, it's like a, the, the title of some talk you're going to give about suffering. And then about suffering, they were never wrong, end of line. Well, who? Who was never wrong? Next line, the old masters. It's the first time it really struck me that that, that, that was important. It goes on, how well they understood, end of line, its human position, how it takes place, end of line, while someone else is eating or opening, etc. And I think that that was when I really first thought about enjambment, which, as you know, is a, a sentence running across more than one line. And what happens is where you break the sentence at the end of the line, you get a sort of added finale. So instead of saying how well they understood its human position, you get, because you break the line after understood, how well they understood a sort of general point about their wisdom. And then further detail, its human position, how it takes place. So that's something else. It ends there. The line ends there. So this is about suffering they understand how it takes place. Yes, that makes sense, a general truth, but then it continues, the sentence continues beyond the line while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dolly along. So all that was going on just in these first four or five lines of um, Musée de Beauvoir. And I think, the memory plays tricks, but I think that is where I started to really think about close readings of poems and how enriching such thinking was. You may not agree. If you don't agree, you've probably already left. So the rest of us can uh, pat each other on the back for our agreement with each other. In that line that suffering takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. The use of awe there. You expect a, a poet to maybe come up with a, with a, a cleverer link, but he repeats awe, awe, and he's trying to make it sound like everyday, normal speech. So suffering, this grand idea, is contrasted with 
someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. Everyday conversation, everyday life. And that guttural L in walking dully along, it really slows you down. It makes you plod. It makes it unspectacular and everyday, again, in contrast with this grand idea of suffering, this big centre stage production. So I think this first section is partly about, I suppose, pictorial composition. It's about how the old masters resisted always putting suffering centre stage, even though, you know, it would normally be the main theme of the, of the painting. And I guess they do it partly t- to give a more original composition, to move away from the obvious. But also, Ordner suggests that they are making a serious point about what I suppose, I suppose you'd call it the subjectivity of significance. My significance is different from someone else's. It's like when an ambulance goes past, you know, with the lights flashing and the sirens on. For someone, the person in there, you know, it could be a life-defining experience. But for us, most the rest of us, it's the pain of having to pull over to let someone else's life-defining experience get past. So that's the point made brilliantly, obviously much better than that in this first part that suffering takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. It continues. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. So, again, the contrast between the involved and the uninvolved, you know, being in the ambulance or, or sitting in your car watching it sail by. The, uh, the aged in this sound very pious and they're reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, whilst the children who did not specially want it to happen are skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. And there is obviously the contrast between the two. But it's interesting because what he says there is, uh, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen. It seems to be that's how life has to work. We can't all be part of the grand moment. With suffering, I mean, this, I think he slightly moved away from suffering in that this is the miraculous birth. I assume he's talking about the birth of Jesus. But it is true that whenever the birth of Jesus is featured in religious circles, that the death of Jesus is never far away. I mean, the fact that one of the magi, the wise men, brought myrrh, which was used as embalming fluid, gives the idea that the the child is born and this new life has happened, but already they're looking forward to why he was born and what is the ultimate purpose of Jesus in, uh, in the whole story. 
It could be, by the way, that the aged who are reverently, passionately waiting are meant to be the magi. That seems to, to make sense. So I think he's stretching it a bit here, the idea that is this about suffering? Well, there is suffering and there's suffering to come and there's intimations of suffering, certainly in the birth of Jesus. And the children don't care. They're skating. And as he says, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen. I read Middlemarch when I was at Birmingham Polytechnic as well, the George Eliot novel. And I still remember now to this day, there's a bit in it where she talks about her main character is, is suffering, he's in pain, he's crying, he's in a terrible state. And George Eliot says, and this is not verbatim, but dear reader, I don't expect you to feel her pain. She said, we can't go through life feeling the suffering of others, of empathising with the suffering of everyone else. Or she said, life would be unbearable. And I remember the phrase she uses, she says it would be like hearing the grass grow. That's just, there would be no peace for you, no, no silence, no rest if you went through life like that. So there always must be children who didn't specially want it to happen. We can't all be part of everyone's tragedy, everyone's ominous birth, because life would be unbearable. So then the poem, and this is how I read the poem for 20 years, it seems to cut straight to the crucifixion. And that's a neat switch from birth, looking forward to death, cutting to death, looking forward to rebirth, if you like, and resurrection. So I'll read that bit. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. So again, this the dreadful martyrdom, which I, I say I have always I always did assume was the crucifixion that seems seems to work coming from the nativity. I thought this was another fabulous example of this massive event that changed the lives of millions of people, but meanwhile there's dogs sniffing around and a and a horse scratching its behind on a tree. It begins, they never forgot, and that echoes, they were never wrong, from, from the, the first lines. So that the old masters are held up here as, as sources of truth and wisdom. They, never, they were never wrong, and they never forgot what they knew. And again, that the imperative, if you like, the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner. This is how it, it has to be. There always must be children who weren't interested. It must run its course anyhow in a corner. It can't, it can't be everyone's centre stage. And that, that bit, the dogs leading their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratching its innocent behind on a tree. It emphasises again that, that contrast between the sacred and the profane, if you like, the miraculous and the everyday. Words like doggy and behind 
root the language in, in earthy conversation and away from the, uh, the grand cosmic events. So that's what's going on while Jesus is on the cross. And it's, as I say, it sort of fits perfectly, the miraculous birth to the miraculous death. First, the children skated by oblivious, and now nature itself, dogs and horses, scratch and generally poodle about, uninterested in all this amazing stuff that's happening. And that's how I've always read the poem. Now, th- there is a slight twist on this interpretation, which I think I should probably share with you because... Um, because I love you in, in a way. Now, some of you who've listened to this podcast before will know that I am of the school, whereas I think a poem should ideally stand alone whenever possible and not rely on biographical speculation, trying to relate the, the, you know, the words to the poet's life. Or in this case, the poems should work, I think, without us having to reference any secondary sources like paintings by the old masters. However, this poem, to be fair, and as we shall definitely see in the final section, is is what's known as an ekphrastic poem, which is uh, E-K-P-H-R-A-S-T-I-C, an ekphrastic poem, i.e. a poem which is inspired by a visual work of art. Now, in the final stanza... Auden very definitely refers to Peter Bruegel, the elder's landscape with the fall of Icarus. So we can't really get around that. But I discovered Auden, I have to say, long before Google Images. And I loved the poem for years before I ever saw a representation of the painting. So I think Auden has achieved, even though he directly refers to a painting... I think he's achieved a poem that doesn't need that visual reference. And I I urge you not to seek out that painting until you've had a look at the poem. Anyway, the the poem's title, Musée de Beauvoir, seems to be Auden shorthand for... I won't won't, uh, try the French again. But basically, the Royal Museum of Fine Arts of Belgium which is where the Icarus painting that he refers to specifically later on hangs. And there in that museum, there are two other Bruegel paintings which may be relevant to this poem, The Census at Bethlehem and The Massacre of the Innocents, which include details, certainly, that that I would say most critics feel are directly relevant to the passages we've just looked at. I don't think you need to know them. But there is a major point about the the switch to the crucifixion, which I think I should I, I feel a duty to share. Okay, so the census of Bethlehem, first of all, is a painting that shows Mary and Joseph arriving. I don't know if you're uh, what your biblical knowledge is, but basically the reason Jesus is born in Bethlehem is that Mary and Joseph have to go there to sort of register to fill in their census forms, if you like. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, even though it it had been predicted in the Bible, he was mainly born there for admin reasons. Now, again, I don't know that there's much suffering in the painting as such. I mean, nothing like a crucifixion, certainly. 
But Mary looks certainly like the labour might have started. And she also looks utterly exhausted, probably after a long donkey ride. She's on donkey back, is that a word? Ass back? It's horseback's okay, donkey back is okay. She's on donkey back and she just looks a bit half asleep and pained and like she may have already heard about Bethlehem's accommodation issue. So there is some suffering. I'd say the most noticeable thing about uh, Joseph and Mary in the painting is that they aren't that noticeable. There's a sort of where's Wally element to uh, the census at Bethlehem, which does fit with a theme, of course, the great events lost in the crowd. And it's worth looking at. I must say that reading Musée de Beauvoir got me massively into Bruegel, who I didn't know about before. And so when I did eventually see the Icarus painting, which is directly referred to, I started looking at lots of Bruegel and actually went to Vienna to visit the Kunsthistorisches Museum and spent an hour in the Bruegel room there. So... You know, it's like that thing on um, Amazon where they say, if you like this, you'll probably like, etc. I don't see any aged passionately waiting in the census of Bethlehem, but like I say, that could be a reference to the Magi, that, that works out. And they're still off stage at this point. There are children skating, fair play. I don't know how cold it actually gets in Palestine, but I guess... Bruegel, the elder, was North European. He knows Jesus was born in December. He set the whole scene in snow. You know, stick with what you know. So far, so good. But if we take the Bruegels at the Belgian Museum as our guide, we never reach the crucifixion. The dreadful martyrdom seems to be not the death of Jesus, if we're taking literally from what is in that building but rather the massacre of the innocents. And again, I don't know what your biblical knowledge is, but briefly, when the Magi or the three wise men or even the three kings, as they're sometimes called, were on their way to see this, uh, following this star, to see this miraculous birth, King Herod, the bad guy, stops them and says, well, look, on the way back, why don't you drop in here? Tell me exactly where the baby is housed and I can get a gift to him. Obviously, seeing him as a massive threat to his power and planning to polish the baby off. So they, being wise, the wise men don't drop off. So what Herod does is kill every boy child age two and under, in the Bethlehem area. It's a grim tale, and the massacre of the innocents, this painting, shows that. Again, it's not quite exact, but I think with a, with an ekphrastic painting, often it's just the seed of, of the painting becomes the poem. It doesn't have to be a direct blow-for-blow reference you know there are horses but i don't see any behind scratching for example there's definitely dogs around and like i said i like the transition from miraculous birth to crucifixion because jesus's death on the cross is a sort of i can't believe i'm about to say this but jesus's death on the cross is a sort of easter egg hidden in the nativity story 
you know, a sense of foreboding amidst all the celebrations. But to be fair, if we see the massacre of the innocents as the dreadful martyrdom, there is a neatness in that. In the previous painting, there was indifferent, happily skating children, and now they're the suffering ones. That's the switch on it, because any boys under two on that Bethlehem ice would be in major trouble once the uh, slaughtering began. And also, if it is the massacre and the innocence that the dreadful martyrdom refers to, then the torturer's horse that scratches his innocent behind on a tree, well, that also fits the theme quite neatly because it sort of unspecials the massacre. And I suppose this whole poem is about unspecialing suffering. It unspecials it in that the word innocent, which is always applied to the massacre of the innocents, that's what it's always called sometimes the slaughter of the innocents but also the innocents these young children but now innocent is applied to a horse behind as well as the victims of herod's terrible cruelty and again it's that you know the sacred and the profane there is some chaos in the painting lots of cruelty obviously crying mothers and i guess you could you could say there are some killings happening anyhow in a corner like I say, it doesn't have to directly refer. I mention this. I I loved the poem without knowing any of this for years. I just thought I'd give you a bit extra. It will make the podcast a bit longer. But you know what? It's free. Can I say as well, just to make it longer still, the first time I saw this painting in the flesh, and it's difficult to say you've seen a Bruegel painting in the flesh because there's so many copies and blah, blah, kicking around. But this is not strictly speaking an arts podcast so you'll have to go elsewhere for that information anyway i saw it at hampton court the painting and the the children had been uh, replaced by sacks of grain so it just looked like these soldiers had arrived to steal grain from villagers who'd been carrying them about it was a sort of it had been cleaned up a bit and and dehorrored Anyway, what I'm saying is I've read the poem for years, thinking uh, nativity, crucifixion in those first two sections, and now I've got options if I need them. Anyway, we can move on now to the final stanza, which leaves no doubt which event and which painting Auden is referring to. So he now turns away from the biblical to the classical world. A bit of background in case you don't know. The Icarus story, most of you will. Icarus was a young lad and his dad, Daedalus, they were imprisoned on Crete. And Daedalus built some wings for them to wear to escape, held together by wax. And despite his dad's very specific warnings, Icarus flies too near the sun, the wax melts and he falls to the earth. So again, suffering is demanding full attention here. But but Bruegel, the elder's landscape with the fall of Icarus, which is what he's called, is basically a landscape with a man ploughing in the foreground. And where's Icarus? If you look closely, you can see 
a small splash in the nearby body of water and two flailing legs about to sink beneath the surface. But it makes sense that it's called Landscape with the Fall of Icarus because the, the, even the billing makes Icarus sound like an afterthought. Anyway, here is Auden's take on, on the painting. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The ploughman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. So, there you go. It's a very conversational opening. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, and he... He lets the painting, I think, the details of the painting, do, do most of the heavy lifting in this section. It, it's more description than analysis, I would say. It's like he feels we've got the idea by now. He doesn't have to hammer it home. He points out that the, uh, the sun, S-U-N, and the ship, which is obviously inanimate, and the plowman, which is obviously animate, all remain unmoved by this amazing happening. He says the ploughman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. And I think that sort of hammers home that probably failure was a commonplace to uh, the ploughman as, as it was to many people of the time. And when I say of the time, it's set in Bruegel's time in the 16th century and also this particular failure happens to a stranger so it 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 doesn't strike the plowman as especially significant the sun shone as it had to on the white legs again these things this is how life has to be the sun has to shine and the ship must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky. So here's a quick burst of action and intensity. Something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky. Those are my exclamation marks, by the way. But then those guttural L's that we got early in the poem when someone was just walking dully along when uh, suffering happened... Now the ship sailed calmly on and it just slows it. It was a big burst of excitement, but it was in a little pocket of its own and the rest of the world just keeps going. Weirdly, I must have read this poem over the years about 40 or 50 times before I realised it had end rhymes. I, I can't find a happy way of reading the poem that emphasises them. I'll have a quick go, but it, it won't help. I'll do that last bit again. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster, the ploughman may, got those two away in May, have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive delicate ship that must have seen rhyming with green, something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, rhyming with cry, which is like four lines ago, had somewhere to get to and sail calmly on, 
rhyming with Sean. It's they're in there, but they are they are hiding. I wonder if Auden wants the tradition of rhyme, but he wants the sort of modernity of a much looser, free verse. He sort of echoes the old masters. They're sort of bastions of art tradition. But here they're saying quite modern things, I think, about subjectivity and, and empathy. I should say in the Icarus story, everyone sees the Icarus story who knows it as a warning about getting ideas above your station, aiming too high. But Daedalus actually says to his son, don't fly too high or the sun will melt the wings and don't fly too low or they'll get damp and also fall apart. So in fact, it's a story about moderation, the via media, the middle road. And maybe the art reflects that, I suppose, that I know your pain seems world-shattering, but consider it in context. The brilliant American writer David Foster Wallace did a great talk about avoiding suffering, not that he ever really managed that very well himself, but he was talking about being in a supermarket and there's someone pushing a trolley into the, the back of your legs. You can't find the thing that you're looking for on the shelves. There's a kid screaming... And it's just horror. And he said the thing to do is imagine yourself on the ceiling looking down on the scene and you're just a figure. You're just one of the extras in that scene. The way that Bruegel portrays Mary and Joseph, for example, or the falling Icarus. And he says that that's the way to happiness, that where pain Pain comes from always being the star of every scene in the movie of your life. And if you can make yourself sometimes more secondary, less centre stage, then there's less pressure and less pain. And also you see yourself as part of a community of humankind, all suffering, all getting trolleys shoved in the backs of their legs and listening to children crying. I don't feel, and I know my time is basically up, and you can switch off now and it's fine. We've talked about a brilliant Auden poem and I hope you liked it. I don't feel I can go without doing a, a little bit about Funeral Blues, which is that poem that appeared in Four Weddings and a Funeral, just because it's a greatest hit. And the thing is, I think it is a brilliant poem and I, I don't want you to think that I, I've decided it's rubbish because it was very popular for a period of time, but I'm, I'm going to talk about it. Funeral Blues was written in 1938, very close to when Musée de Beauvoir was written, but they have very different messages, it, it seems. The speaker in Funeral Blues, and I don't know if you remember the scene in Four Weddings, but a guy reads this out at, at a funeral about the man that he loves who has, who has died. The speaker of the poem seems to expect the whole world to stop for his personal tragedy. There's no moderation, no, no greater context. Everyone has to feel this pain. Why wouldn't they? It's so enormous. This is a sort of a hymn to subjectivity, I suppose you would say. I'm not going to keep you too long, but I think I should read and talk about this a bit. And also I do like it and it's great to read. Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, 
Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. Now here we've got obvious end rhymes and regular rhythm, but this is a blues. It's called Funeral Blues, a title it sort of gains and loses. But anyway, it's known as Funeral Blues. And it's good because the pleasure of its regularity and rhyme battles with the desperate sadness of its content and that I like it when the the rhyme and the rhythm of a of a very sad poem gives you a sort of a handrail that gets you through all the anguish because you're reminded that human beings can create beautiful rhymes and rhythms and that sort of makes life seem okay even when things are terrible and stop all the clocks is such a great opening time stands still now the loved one has gone and this is not stop the clock it's all the clocks everybody's he doesn't silence the piano he silenced the pianos the plural he's not referring to a specific piano this is it's like he's stopping all the pianos in the world all music all pleasure all beauty and only, a, 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 as he says, a muffled drum. That's all you're going to get. That, that is all that's appropriate to this, this terrible, terrible sadness. He goes on. Let aeroplanes circle moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, he is dead. Put crepe bows around the white necks of the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. So it's it's not just a personal event. It's a public one. It, it It's it's the opposite of those Bruegel paintings. Everyone has to feel this. Even the aeroplane that's doing that skywriting is moaning overhead. Even that sounds like it's mourning. And it writes, he is dead. That it doesn't, the aeroplane doesn't need to name him. How could anyone not be aware of this catastrophic, desperately sad event you don't need to everyone must know mustn't they look how it's affected me says the speaker and nature itself must be dressed accordingly and there's no oblivious dogs now or horses scratching their bombs not noticing even the public doves are dressed for mourning and Everything, the, the, the sort of knots and bolts of organised society, you know, the traffic policemen are wearing black cotton gloves now instead of the usual white. It's a universal, well, at this stage, it's, it's worldwide, the morning, it seems. It's about to get universal soon. The third stanza is in a way a very simple thing, but God, I think it is outstandingly moving he was my north my south my east and west my working week and my sunday rest my noon my midnight my talk my song i thought that love would last forever i was wrong i mean come on come on that's so good isn't he and you know like we could go through this in great he was my north, my south, my east, and where everything, everywhere, everywhere I looked, every prospect, every possible destination was him. My working week and my Sunday rest. So the sort of business of life, the mundane activities of life, and the, the beautiful 
pleasure and leisure of life. My noon, my midnight, so that the bright day with, of activity, my midnight, this, this relaxed, intimate pleasure of midnight, my talk, you know, communication, sharing my song, that sort of exuberance that when you, you sing, all was in this, this dead lover and now all gone. It didn't last forever. And the last stanza, can I say, by the way, that stanza, I, I don't normally do word counts, but I just did this myself. There aren't, the word my in those four lines appears nine times and the word I twice. It's now phenomenally subjective. It's subjectivity as, as an illness. When people talk about the other half, they casually refer to their partner as the other half. This is the other half expressed in detail, what that means to feel that someone else completes you. And now the, the final stanza, well, there's, there's no point in anything anymore. Now it has become truly cosmic. The stars are not wanted now, put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. Wow. And the grief, in a way, the grief is ludicrous, I suppose. But it, it doesn't undermine that grief, the fact that it's ludicrous. In fact, I would say its ludicrousness, its extremeness is its beauty and we we reach out I think as human beings to someone else who's expressing their grief like that maybe more than we do to Bruegel the elder saying you know well it means a lot to us but other people are just skating past or going by on their ships doing a bit of plowing scratching their bombs anyway the title I think funeral blues the title gives a license for self-indulgence the blues is all about intense displays of feeling sorry for yourself i think would be a fair summary of the blues whereas the title musée de beauvoir suggests a sort of intellectual measured classical attitude tragedy with perspective if you like so there you are two very different poems but i think both brilliant and uh, both in Auden's collected shorter poems, 1927 to 1957, as are many, many other brilliant poems. Sock it and see. OK, so thus ends, I'm sad to say, this current series of Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. It has run its course anyhow in a corner. But it's a corner I very much love to inhabit, and I'll see you there again, I hope very soon so thank you so much for listening to this episode of my poetry podcast don't forget to press subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode <laughs> imagine it and if you enjoyed it never know please do rate review and subscribe oh and why not buy my new book how to enjoy poetry by frank skinner 
P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. laughs.